0: This week on In Good Faith, we're doing something very different, but also something we've been very excited about for a while, which is to start our book club. I'm Stephen Cap Perry, host of In Good Faith. We've got senior producer Heather Bigley with us. Hello. Also, producers Austin Ball. Hey. And Peter Ellison. Howdy. So, Heather, this was your idea, but we all chimed in with, yes, why did we all think of this? Why a book club?
1: Um, well, I used to teach. Uh, for over 20 years, both university and high school students. So for me, uh, one of the funnest things in the world to do is to read a book together and to talk about it. And not just in praise, but also uh, lots of like, (laughs) what in the world? Did you see that part? Uh, So yeah, that's. I think that's a good time. And we read so many books here, and I thought it was time for us to actually get to talk to each other about them.
0: And the idea is not that just you as a listener right now get to hear us talk about the books. We want to announce what what books we're going to be reading and have you feel free to comment, even send in voice comments or written comments. And so this is something we can all read and think about together as a listenership. That's very exciting to me. So the first book This is one I suggested, so if you hate it, it's my fault, but I really liked this book. And this is Eckhart Tolle's, and we're not saying it perfectly like the German, but we're saying it how we say it here in in the States. It's The Power of Now, which he wrote in 1997. And about the year 2000, Oprah found it. And of course, anything she touches, it's like manna from heaven, and everyone knows about it. That's how I know about it. And it sold millions and millions of copies and was sort of the beginning of this mindfulness movement that we all hear mm-hmm. a lot about. So here's, here's just a little about uh, this whole concept, which I think sort of sums up what he goes into, which is, and, I, and uh, I'm quoting here. He says, the only important time is the one we think about the least, the present. And the reason the present matters is because that's where everything happens. The past is a collection of past happenings. The future is uh, is stuff that hasn't even happened yet. So we spend our life with our minds either in anxiety, which is worry about the future, sometimes depression, which is, oh, why did I do that? Or why could this have happened to me in the past? And so it's finding something in the present moment that can relieve us of those other things. I just think that's pretty interesting.
1: I have to say, as someone who's been through therapy, I was like, oh, right. I learned that in therapy. I learned this in therapy. I learned this in therapy. So um, there's a lot of these ideas. Like When we talk about mindfulness now, we are really talking about a Western trend, Mm. I think, when we're referring to mindfulness. Mindfulness has always existed. It's it's always been somewhere, usually, um, in those Eastern um, traditions that has been really important. And so he's really encapsulating like a bunch of different ideas that he's gotten from a bunch of different traditions, which I think is why it was palatable to an audience in the 2000s. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't have to become a Buddhist monk to learn these things. I can spend some time with this book.
2: This book was written 25 years ago now. And I think I found at least that, you know, our thinking on a lot of these issues has evolved so much since then. But this book does touch on so many great ideas. And a lot of the ideas in it, are from these kind of um, different traditions being synthesized together, but it's still really radical. There's a lot of changes to the way we need to view the world to kind of Understand what he's getting at, which I think is super fascinating. So he's very open to spiritual teachings
0: from around the world. He's going to quote Jesus and parables and say, "Well, this is what this means." He's going to quote
3: well, all. Well, and the I holy have books. to say,
1: can we stop the way he interpreted some of those parables? I was like, <laughs> whoa, okay."
3: <laughs> I'm kind of esoteric man.
1: Yeah, I'm going to let you do that, yeah. but that, I've never thought of it that way before. Yeah,
0: it, it, including one time when he's he, he's talking about the, a parable I'm going to refer to later. Uh, about the the ten virgins and the lamps. Yes. Mm-hmm. And he says, well, the misunderstanding with this began right when somebody wrote it down. <laughs> right. and like, oh, okay.
3: <laughs> and I'd like to point out that's coming from a pre-existing sort of theosophical movement where you've got the perennial tradition. Some people assume that all truth is truth as it's revealed. And so the Baha'i faith kind of presupposes this. But it gets a certain bent um, in the mindfulness movement, especially with Eckhart Tolle. Uh, he's sort of the leader uh, in, in this second wave, almost, I'd say, of American mindfulness. Whereas before, he sort of had the beatniks, um, Alan Watts, Ram Dass. They came out with books like these. I haven't been able to read them, so I can't make a comparison. But it's interesting to, to point that out as well.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So we go on. So I want to dive in with what caught my attention. I I picked up the book. I thought I'm going to give this a few pages and see if that that's how I start books. They get <laughs> they get two pages to see if I'm. In the, wow,
1: <laughs> that is that's that's that's
2: the Gen Z attention <laughs> span right there. It's wow,
0: good, good writing, and I was captured. In fact, he has this experience that I thought, well, could this please happen to me? I want to be one with the universe. (laughs) So, uh, I'm just going to pull out a few lines from the introduction. Until my 30th year, he says, I lived in a state of almost continuous anxiety interspersed with periods of suicidal depression. Sounds really great so far. Okay. It feels now as if I'm talking about some past lifetime or someone else's life. So he's just ruminating on how miserable his life is. He's about to, it's evening, he's about to go to bed, and how could he be in the state he's in? And he hears himself say to himself, page four of my copy, I can't live with myself any longer. This was the thought that kept repeating itself in my mind. And then suddenly I became aware of how peculiar that was. Am I one? Or two, if I cannot live with myself, there must be two of me. An I and a self that I cannot live with, maybe only one of them is real. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the entry point, I think, for the whole book. And he, he he has this stunning change of consciousness that's mind-bending to him. In fact, wakes up the next day hearing... Music and birds and sounds and whole other ways he spends a couple of years basically in bliss sitting on a park bench. Those are I, his words i 'd yeah. be his words i 'd be okay with that too but um ha, if that happened to me, but uh, he starts talking to other spiritual traditions and 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 seeking into them, and then he starts to realize what they are looking for is what already happened to me and then i 'll end with this. Later, people would come up to me and say, "I want what you have. Can you give it to me or show me how to?" And I would say, "You have it already. You just can't feel it because your mind is making too much noise mm-hmm. so that's what I want to ask about for me. It was like, okay, i want to be, is my mind making too much noise because I think I live in my thoughts continually.
1: Well, I think that's a fascinating um This is a fascinating idea to introduce to a bunch of people who uh, are invested in college education, right? (laughs) And uh, also are writers, is to be like, oh, you shouldn't be thinking so much. And Mm -hmm. I'm very much identified with the voice in my head. Mm. Uh, So I was very resistant to, like, the first half of this book. Like, I was just like, come on, man. (laughs)
3: Because my voice is the voice that I project into the world, this thinking part of me. right? Right.
1: Yeah, very I, much.
2: When I was first reading his, this, this description of how we make so much noise in our heads, whether it's our own voice or voices of those around us, that we don't actually get to know the real self that might exist within, um, I was kind of shocked by this because I – so this is something I've been thinking about for a while, but this book kind of catalyzed it. I fill my head with so much noise, whether it's headphones with music going almost all day every day or like – kind of ironically on other podcasts or YouTube videos, I almost constantly have someone, whether it's myself or another human being, talking into my head.
1: Right. (laughs) And (laughs) Well, you're reminding me of uh, an essay from, oh my gosh, 200, 300 years ago, and I can't remember the author, where he says, uh, if you really want to know what to think, you have to stop reading. (laughs) Like, you think that by reading you're going to learn how to think or what to think, but actually you're just filling your head with other voices. Yeah. So what is it that you think, right? Um, yeah, so again, this idea has been around a lot. And also, but I, I think there's a space or there's a time when we do need that. I'm going to push back a little bit from Fitzgerald <laughs> <this gets totally laughs> and say, we do need to have other voices for a while.
0: So I'm thinking of, as you've been talking, philosophy phrases are popping into my mind like, know thyself, Right. also the unexamined life is not worth living. Mm -hmm. And so one thing that was useful to me is this idea of, and, and therapists have really latched onto this as a benefit for people, which is still in your mind, not that you're, I thought meditation was, I will stop thinking. And so I could never do it. And I really gleaned from this something useful, which is, no, it is creating a bit of distance And I'm observing the thoughts, but I'm not attaching to each one and then worried and writing out three ways I can prepare for this thing that may happen in the future. It's just, I observe it. It's like it's floating down the river like a leaf. I acknowledge it. Good, bad, frightening, whatever. It's a thing. And then I let it float past.
1: So here's a question I have for all of you. How many of you sat down and did any of the exercises? C'est moi. I did I did one. I did one.
2: Okay, I, what did you I, do, I Peter? I felt bad. There was this one exercise where he described, like, being still, like, putting everything away and kind of feeling the body. Um, and kind of, like, bringing your awareness to the body itself and then kind of letting that wash over you and then kind of trying to leave the body a little bit. Um, I don't know if it worked for me. I My head, I trained myself to be too loud in the head.
1: <laughs> well, I think... I'm just old. So I'd be like, I'm like, I'm looking at my, I'm like thinking about my body. I'm like, oh yeah, that, my shoulder. Oh, that hurts. Oh, my feet are cold. Oh, you know, like, so it was just like became a litany of all the things (laughs) that were wrong. Like, and Hmm. he kept, there's a one section where he kept saying, what's wrong now? Like, and that's supposed to solve a problem. And I think you're supposed to go nothing. But I was like, oh yeah, I got a list. (laughs) This is how I'm feeling. Um, So I don't know. Maybe I'm just too identified also with my old aging body.
3: Maybe a bigger question to nestle that question within if we did any of the exercises is if anybody regularly practices mindfulness or meditation.
1: Is that you, Austin? I do. Okay, good. Um,
3: I haven't been doing you, it as much you since you the remained semester started. Quiet.
1: You remained quiet when I asked that question.
3: <laughs> well, a lot of them, you know, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, I've done that mm-hmm. a few times. I'm interested in his confidence in consciousness because he says, you know, if you can bring consciousness to your physical, he doesn't say this explicitly, but. What I got is, if you can bring it to your pain, whether it's physical or emotional, right. you know, it'll dissolve. That's not what I've experienced.
1: One of you mm-hmm. will tell us about that.
3: Well, maybe I'm just trying to develop some <laughs> solidarity between you and me because
0: um,
2: there's an alliance forming. We need to team up, Steve. <laughs>
0: okay, because I, I did this exercise too, so I have things to say. Yeah, yeah, I think
3: um, it brings me into. An awareness of the spots of me that are hurting, you know, mm. in my body or in my my mind, in my spirit. I don't think that they should be dissolved in consciousness, per se, as he would say. And maybe I'm misinterpreting him. But I think that there are messages in them, you know, that we should take seriously. Right. Messages that we can act on. Which I do usually. It's like, oh, well, I need to stretch or eat a little bit healthier get a little bit more sleep mm. are usually the realizations that I come to so it's fairly pragmatic um, and those are the solutions for them not more meditation
2: mm. right it's sort of a springboard yeah mm. really quick i want to dial back in to kind of what he thinks about being cuz i think we've started discussing some really interesting like perspectives on it but you know what does he actually say and um I don't have a great quote for this, so if someone has one, jump in. But this one idea that I found that connects to this directly is he claims that the big kind of misconception that we've fallen into is identifying ourselves with our mind and our bodies. Um, He describes—he calls the body the pain body a lot of the time in this book— because Well,
1: I think he's making a differentiation between the pain body and okay. the body, mm-hmm. right? Like he's yeah. saying, there's a part where he says the pain body is the shadow of the mind, e- the ego mind. So it's this um, accumulation, right? Mm-hmm. This accretion of all your hurts that you've never dealt with.
0: And that it wants to stay alive by making you rethink those like a loop and it feeds off your pain.
1: Right. And mm-hmm. I i mean, this is something that I actually was like, yeah, I can remember as a much younger person, something would go wrong or I would perceive of something going wrong. And then later I would just relive, 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 relive. I don't know if you've had that. You're all nodding. They're yes, all nodding. They, are. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, and that is a really painful place to be, right? Mm-hmm. Um And so I was, I, most of the time I've been able to like pull myself out of that. Like I don't do that very often anymore. Though it is surprising sometimes out of nowhere will come a memory of some experience where I am just like assailed by like, oh, you should have been really embarrassed by that bigly and all you did was like laugh and and (laughs) like, like Oh, yeah, that's just how I roll. Um, anyway, so I have these moments where I do get assailed by these past memories. Yeah.
2: But- so there's these kind of, these mental processes lock together with our mind in a way that's he argues is really damaging and is actually not who we truly are. Right. It's this thing that we've falsely identified with, as you've been using that language a lot, Heather, which is so great. Um, and it's by kind of, observing this phenomenon happen, this identification happen, that we can start to kind of access true consciousness. Mm -hmm. And he calls this kind of combination of mind and body and pain body processes, he calls it um,
1: unconsciousness. Which I had to look up because I felt like he was, I felt like the language for a moment was like putting those in, contradistinction to each other, mm. but... Okay, sorry, go
3: ahead. There is a vocabulary for this stuff. I think that Eckhart is a closeted Vedanta philosopher um, <laughs> where you could, you know, make this distinction between uh, Brahman, um, which is pure consciousness, the only reality, unchanging, um, and Jannam, which is the realm of name and form and identity. He doesn't get super but specific no about no. this yeah <laughs> dang <laughs> Sorry. um he doesn't get specific about it but i think that's where he's going with his presuppositions about identity and reality which i have qualms about i also think it's very appealing and so we can talk about that philosophical system i just don't want to get too systematic because he himself doesn't mm-hmm. but that can be
0: confusing Well, one of the things that was confusing to me and then has ended up being actually useful in my life, I'm thinking of a really popular uh, Eastern philosopher who has a zillion YouTube things, Sadhguru. Mm. And he has this, he said, 18 minutes a day. I don't know how we got this number. 18 minutes a day, you should close your eyes and you should meditate and say, I am not this mind, neither am I this body. That there is an I that is separate from those. And so I'm thinking, but neither he or Eckhart in this book talk about the body is bad, which has been part of a lot of, especially some Western philosophy. So the most, the single most helpful thing in this has learning about mindfulness has been using my body as a tool for mindfulness, which seems paradoxical. And... What he said was this whole idea of closing your eyes, start by feeling the actual energy of life that is in your body. He said, it's usually easiest in your hands. And if, if you take a minute, in fact, you could pause this podcast right now and do right. that, uh, but we won't. And, and feeling and then moving through your body, concentrating each, each place and feeling that. And that was actually really useful to me. And I found it surprisingly calming. So here's a recent example. A while ago, I thought of this kind of a fun project I want to do in the future. I mentioned it to a friend. Last week, this friend makes this big announcement. Here's this project I'm doing. Oh. <laughs> and, and I'm not involved in it. And I, and I thought, well, okay, more than one person can have a project in the world. And But I had this momentary, really kind of, what I would call the natural man reaction of, wait a minute, that was my friend, and did they steal my idea? And then I thought, no, I'll be in my body for a minute, because I have never in my whole life done this. I am always in my head and thinking, and never in the middle of something like this, thinking, here I am in my body, and actually having some awareness of that. And I really did feel some of that dissolving. Wow. Wow. Like, well, okay, because I found some solid ground to stand on and suddenly I'm like, they can still be my friend, they can still do their project and i still do my project and I'm just not going to, I'm not worried about it.
1: Well, and I think, I mean, one of the things that was, I thought rang true to me earlier on in the book was when he says, if you're having a thought and then your body is telling you something different— pay attention to what your body is telling you, your body, and I'm paraphrasing, is going to be more honest with you Mm. about really what the truth of your reaction is. Because I think we can say to ourselves a number of things, you know, and again, I mentioned therapy. I mean, one of the most important things I learned in therapy that he talks about here is, you know, anger is a secondary emotion. Anytime you're feeling anger, then you should really be asking yourself, you know, what, what am I actually feeling? Which is something, I guess, if I were to have a mantra, <laughs> and I hate to reveal this about myself, but it is, why am I angry right now? Because, mm. Mm. especially as a young person, I was often very angry, but felt like I couldn't be angry, right? Both it wasn't as, acceptable. It was not expe- acceptable, both as a woman, both as a Christian. You know, like, there's a l- number of layers about why mm. this this person couldn't be angry with people, which is why I became very funny, Um So, uh, but yeah, just pausing and saying, what's really going on? What am I really feeling? Why am I feeling that way? And just taking that time. Um, He talks about it here, but I think it's a practice that has always been super helpful for me. So,
3: Mm -hmm. I'm very interested in his hierarchy of emotions. Yeah. Because negative emotions he attaches to these false selves that we've constructed, such as the pain body. But our actual bodies have feelings like pleasure and pain. I'm interested in what he thinks of bodies because the otherworldly sort of mysticism that he's getting this from in India, it's um, quite ascetic and body-denying. But what he thinks is the realist part of us, that Brahman, um, that we are, that pure consciousness. He associates with it joy, serenity, and... Some other thing.
2: Love. I
1: believe
3: peace. is Peace, peace, peace love, and, love. Besides, and joy. Yeah.
1: I think those are the three that he brings. But he says those are the being, right? Right. If you're feeling that, you're not actually feeling an emotion. You're just connecting to the being.
3: Yeah. So he kind of posits those as manifestations or an evidence that we're connected with ultimate reality and relegates these other negative emotions to secondary or
2: derivative status I'm wondering what you guys think of that. He talked um in this he wrote there was a section kind of all about happiness and like when is it real, when is it fake, when is it fleeting? And what I took away from it, and it's probably very different than what you took away, was his emphasis on peace kind of um kind of bothered me a little bit because a lot throughout a lot of the book he talks about peace being kind of an answer to what we see as our problems, but also as an end goal. And I'll I'll kind of explain that a a bit more. He says a lot that when we access our being and our true consciousness, um, our problems will disappear. Very literally, he says that multiple times over, our problems will vanish and dissolve. And that's so counterintuitive to me off the bat. I look out in the world and I see so many problems that at
0: least dissolve disappear or dissolve cease to be a problem
2: i i believe he he means they cease to be a problem for you mm. um
1: yeah and I, the way i interpreted that was you are no longer going to have pain over the problem that's how i started to think about it because i of course really disagreed right yes, like yes. there's the whole section where he's like i i think this is one of your quotes austin about accepting or changing, and I'm like, okay, let's go back 400 years to slavery. So, what is the, you know, or even today, slavery exists, or people in oppressive relationships, or you know, whatever it is, to say to someone, you know, I, I don't know, so th- this doesn't actually think like look like it's going to solve the issue at hand. Yes, but so I started to think, okay, well, but I have met people who have come out of oppression or who, who are in oppressive situations who are at peace. And why are they at peace? They've done something that sort of gives them the ability to face a problem without saying, it's my fault or feeling shame or feeling uh, anxiety or feeling depression, right? And I, I think maybe that's, I mean, I'm giving him credit for that, that he's he's like pointing— us in that direction. I don't know. If if I can
2: build off that. Oh, yeah, go for it. um, To connect it back to emotion, something that I was just thinking about when you were saying is when we feel like a deep emotional response to something that's going on in the world, that can be, I think, under his view, that can be our ego trying to insert itself into the problem and make ourselves part of this narrative in a way that we might not really be. It's very possible that, like, we do belong in this narrative in a certain way. But I think what he might suggest is that our ego is confusing us and causing us to identify with this problem and then causing these negative emotional responses. And if we, had, we, we adopted, you know, our being and our true consciousness, we would be able to see the problem more clearly and address it. This is a book club edition
0: of In Good Faith. We're going to take a break here, but we will be right back with more about Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now. This is In Good Faith, a book club edition. We're talking about the book, The Power of Now, 25 years old now, and one of the beginning or seminal books in the mindfulness movement, at least using those words in the West for something that has existed really in, in Christian contemplative tradition and in Hinduism and so many other traditions for centuries. And also, yes,
1: a comedic... Uh, bedrock. <laughs> okay, there's just moments that I giggled. Um, so there's this part, it's in the state of presence, which if you have a copy like mine, it's like 82 or 83. And he's talking about how everything that exists has being has God essence, has some degree of consciousness. Everything is alive, the sun, the earth, plants, animals, humans, all are expressions of consciousness in varying degrees consciousness manifesting as form and then he sort of sets up why why is there tragedy though in in the world and he has this line where he goes if a fish is born in your aquarium and you call it John write out a birth certificate tell him about his family history and 2 minutes later he gets eaten by another fish that's tragic and i was like no sir that's comedy <laughs> <laughs> oh, like gosh. can you just see the the pixar movie <laughs> Where that happened? I don't know it made me laugh, but so uh, just these light moments for Dr. Bigley, who uh, was resisting most of the time reading this, and then um, had to giggle.
0: So, and I felt the a, a line for me was crossed here when he's talking about this is a, the inner body, and then he goes, I think someplace well. I, okay, let's not judge it. Let's experience it. He's, he, he has topics like slowing down the aging process, strengthening the immune yeah. system. Now, there are ways in which I can see all of these things being true. But he, he has this. So, if you inhabit the inner body, this is page 123. If you inhabit the inner body, the outer body will grow old at a much slower rate, even And even when it does, your timeless essence will shine through the outer form and you will not give the appearance of an old person. Someone asks, is there any scientific evidence for this? He (laughs) says, try it out and you will be the evidence. Yes,
1: I have ha written right next to that.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm so glad we related. I I just thought, oh, please. Well, there's
1: an earlier part in that section where he says... Um, your physical body will feel lighter, clearer, more alive. As there is more consciousness in the body, its me- molecular structure actually becomes less dense. Wow. And I put question mark. That's powerful. Yeah. More <laughs> consciousness means a lessening of the illusion That's, of material. That sounds
0: like the quantum realm or something. In the-
1: yeah. I mean, I put a question mark because, like, I don't know. But, uh, you know, as a skeptic... Uh,
2: I, I do want to... I... I am not gonna go to bat for these <laughs> ideas, but I will take an at bat. Yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> to use that metaphor. There is I'm very interested by the power of placebo. Oh. Where, you know, our body, our mind believes something, and somehow, some way, against all odds, it's manifested, right? And maybe that should be the sequel,
1: or the, I, mean, <laughs> the you know, I mean, the power placebo. I mean, I think other ways people say that is the power of positive thinking, yes. right? Yes. Well, uh. if you put something positive out there, then it will return, and you it know. will mm-hmm.
2: manifest, right? I don't think you're going to live forever, but I think it's very possible that if you embrace some of these ideas, maybe you'd feel better about aging. Because right. one of the things to kind of connect this to another idea, um, one of the things that was challenging for me about reading this book was the framework he's working on about like the the lifespan of our consciousness is totally different than i think we normally think about in most like faith contexts in this book he's very much committed to that our consciousness is immortal and exists outside of our kind of meat bag that we inhabit for a little bit. <laughs> and that took me a while to grasp because he's making all these claims, and I'm like, what is going on here? And then once I realized that I think he kind of sees the the existence of our meat bag as kind of... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, irrelevant? I don't irrelevant.
1: know. Meat bag <laughs> just kind of turns my stomach. Can I just... <laughs> turn that um, I'm just identifying in my body how I'm feeling about what you're saying. Go okay, ahead. Okay,
2: okay. I just think that once I understood a little bit more about how he views, like, how human lifespan or human existence, like, kind of how long that's supposed to be for him, I kind of understood a little bit more what he was talking about with some of these more off-the-wall claims. Right. There's a,
3: a different metaphysics underlying all of this Exactly, stuff. And we don't need to talk about metaphysics too much. But um, in most faiths, you've got to make a claim about what's ultimately real, And once you get there, what's apparently real can be bent in all sorts of ways. If consciousness is what's really real and we can access it in certain ways, then of course it's going to have sort of miraculous, um, sort of uh, maybe, I'm I'm not sure what the word is, uh, unexpected effects in this kind of material plane. So I could see how that works for sure.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I do want to say really quickly, just kind of about the book and about this kind of notion of humor and kind of what is he claiming right now? Yeah. One of the things that he centers the book, it's one of the first things you read right after his intro, is that he uses words in a very general way to gesture at what he's talking about And he tells you very specifically to not get too caught up on any, like, one issue or one claim or one usage of language. And there's a quote I want to read because—
0: Okay, before the quote? Yes. I listened to this book while I walked my dog. That's how I read it twice. And so I'm holding a physical copy now. But he even says that hearing—if you're reading this or if you're listening and you're hearing my voice, something beyond the words is coming to you. Which I think is kind of interesting, Mm -hmm. just because of the idea. So, sorry, I interrupted.
2: Don't get stuck on the level of words. A word is no more than a means to an end. It's an abstraction. Not unlike a signpost, it points beyond itself. Which I thought is really nice, you know. There's, I'm a philosophy guy. There's some platonic overtones here. There's some interesting things going on. But, um, it makes it really hard to kind of think about critiquing or understanding this book, when he tells you at the top, don't take anything I'm saying too seriously. It's, I don't know. I, well, I didn't yeah. love it. It wasn't my favorite rhetorical move.
1: I actually appreciated it because, well, I appreciated him acknowledging, right, that words are just signposts and, of course, within English studies. Uh, that's a favorite um, sort of a way to interpret. But... um I thought what was interesting is when he started to say, okay, don't focus on these words, like the word sin. Sin is a bad word for you. Don't use sin. It's just like how people don't like the word God. You know, it has all this baggage. And I thought that's, I think that's a actually really helpful move. So what is the word that's going to work for you? Yeah. Right. Um, I did, there did come a moment when he said, don't focus on an image. And I was like, wait, if I can't have words and I can't have images, like what's left? Mm -hmm. Nothing, Heather. That's the point. Um, so it, it just, for me was like, okay, things keep getting taken away and I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not a strong enough student in this this way of being yet, that um, I kind of need those crutches. So, yeah.
0: So, Peter, you said something just even as we were setting up, and I thought, oh, boy, I hope this comes up again. It was the idea, I think Stephen Covey said this, about trying to have some space between the stimulus and the response. Someone says something and you don't go, well, thus I punch you in the nose. Instantly, you, you 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 if you can be aware. Well, you talk about it because I love this idea.
2: Mm-hmm. There's a quote on my my pages are eighty to eighty one right at the bottom, um, but it's probably very different for you. And it says, the wider the time gap between perception and thought, the more depth there is to you as a human being, which is to say, the more conscious you are. And that struck me because it seemed so actionable. And a lot of this book super abstract. This mm. seemed really doable. And in the context, uh, he was talking about, you know, looking at the sky, looking at a flower. And what we do is we, what he claims that we do is that we label it mentally. We say, oh, that's a beautiful flower. But what he says is that, no, we should not label it like that. We should view it, experience it, and try to sit in the gap between seeing it and labeling it or thinking about it as long as we can. And it's in those moments where we can kind of find points of this being in our everyday, mm. which I thought was, you know, maybe you can do a meditation to access the being, but how do I, with my overactive mind, try to find these moments? That's what, I, that's what stuck out to me. And he talks
0: about this, because that could be someone has hurt me. I'm just going to live with this for a long time and not respond, which might not be healthy. And he says in some cases, uh, this is a section called wherever you are, be there totally which i really agree with especially having had conversations with people that yeah. i knew were really somewhere else or working the remote or <laughs> something well, like that
1: i you know i recently a couple well i guess not recently two years ago was in a church training um and the church leader there uh, elder bednar if you know him um he was saying you know we're all pulled in different directions and he introduced this idea of mindfulness. He's like, when you're at home, be at home. Mm. When you're in your church calling, be in your church calling. When you're at work, be at work. Right? And so it was this idea of we're all overburdened. And, I, and and this is just to say, like, this is not a—this is an idea that's important, I think. And a lot of people are picking up on it. And, you know, we, we need to think about—mindfulness is not just about br- being on my carpet and breathing— <laughs> mindfulness is about in my um activity yes being fully present mm-hmm.
0: so i worked at home as a writer for Over a decade.
1: That's impossible.
0: (laughs) I also... It's the
1: hardest thing in the world, Steve. How did you do it?
0: uh, We barely did, and then we stopped (laughs) because we liked eating on a regular basis. Um, Well,
1: that's what I do when I'm supposed to be writing.
0: Oh, is he? Okay, yeah. Well, uh, I have to tell my wife to hide the peanut butter jar because I always just need a big bite of peanut butter Mm -hmm. to prompt the next thing. But I also had young children who as children do, live in the home where their parents live. (laughs) Yes. And these two things were two things that required to me 100% of my attention. If I was with my children, I needed to be there with them. And I found myself with these 200% requiring activities conflicting. Right. And it's the first time in my life I thought I, because I always thought I was a patient and not an angry person, (laughs) but I found myself being unexplainably mad, inexplicably mad, not at my kids because they're just kids who need their shoes tied or have something cool they want to say and not at my work because I was enjoying my work. But why was I so frustrated? And finally, how do I learn to be where I am? And sometimes I had to separate those things to different places and I would just drive to the library and work in a carol there. Can I offer my interpretation on this?
3: Not a psychoanalytic one. Uh, Just based on what you guys have been saying, um, I think this mindfulness you're talking about is a presence with our situation, wherever we find ourselves. And the quote that Peter mentioned, it's a mindfulness with self, where, you know, you see a flower and you're very conscious within your own experience of how it comes to you. Like, how do you encounter it? What do you feel? So wanting to connect those because maybe they're the same concept. I felt like they were a little bit different at first where there's this gap and then where we're completely invested in the present moment Um, but perhaps they're the same and it's through that gap of stimulus and response that our consciousness can bleed through. It's like a little crack and uh, eventually we'll come to a realization we're not as bound up in this um, entanglement of
0: causality, as we might think. This is In Good Faith. It's a book club edition, and we're talking about the power of now. We'll be back in just a moment. This is In Good Faith. Today is a book club episode. We're talking about New York Times bestseller, The Power of Now, written 25 years ago by Eckhart Tolle, which is a really kind of a foundational stone in the mindfulness movement. And interesting to us because he reaches out to so many different traditions and quotes leaders and thoughts from sacred scripture of lots of different traditions. As an interfaith show, this sort of piqued our interest. Eckhart draws
3: from a lot of different sources of wisdom. He uses Jesus. He uses the Buddha. I'm sure there are other examples. Maybe you guys can help me out here. He talks about Zen. Right. What I didn't like about it was that he sort of claimed they were all saying the same thing. He put them into his own interpretive framework and sort of assumes that it's the only truth. What is useful about that is... Well,
0: what's useful about it? I don't I don't know. I, I think with any book like this, there's this process where you say, I am coming from a particular place in life experience. I belong to a particular denomination, and right. I'm active in that. I have my own set of scriptures or holy books I spend the most time in. So, I'm coming from someplace when I approach this. So, it's easy to be reading, and then the first thing you read that's different at all is to go, oh, heresy, or oh, doesn't know what he's talking about. But to suspend that is a useful thing because if you do, you often then will find the point of commonality you're talking about. But like you said, Austin, sometimes you're going, excuse me, I don't think that's even what that parable means. But okay, I'm willing to hear someone talk about, I wonder why he thinks it means that. It's very inclusive, but he
3: doesn't situate himself amongst a doctrine among doctrines his is sort of the truth
2: Mm -hmm. right (laughs)
1: right and (laughs) And it's a rhetorical move too because it's i mean basically saying we're all connected to this one and noble thing so let me show you
2: how you let me show you how you already believe what i'm saying right i i really feel what you said and a lot of his quotes i was just thinking to myself I, i didn't feel like he was actually engaging with Jesus or the Buddha, he was just using a snippet of words to serve what he had just said, Uh. which, you know... Cherry picking? Really kind of rankled me, but I do think it serves a really important function of saying there is a bridge for you, no matter where you come from, into what I'm saying right now. And I don't think we have to take that as saying, you know, him, like, colonizing someone else's faith, saying this is what Jesus actually meant, this is what the Buddha actually meant, but... If I think of it more of as a bridge, it's a little bit more tolerable to me. (laughs) It's a gracious way to take it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Says the guy who doesn't take it that way. (laughs) (laughs) So, what do you do in accepting what is? Because that seems an important part of the book, that uh, accepting things as they are. Now, do you leave them the same? Or maybe... I accept that I am in this horrible relationship and someone's about to hit me. Do you accept that? Or do, you, or what can you do? And, and he talks about this surrender. He says, surrender is not weakness. There is great strength in it. Only a surrendered person has spiritual power. Through surrender, you are free internally of the situation. And then you can find that either it changes without any effort on your part. Or you can see how it should change. And, 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 and I did laugh when I read this part. Is there something you should be doing but aren't doing? Get up and do it now. Or alternatively, completely accept your inactivity, laziness, or passivity at this moment, if that's your choice. Go into it. Fully enjoy it. Be as lazy or as inactive as you can. Yeah. If you go into it fully and consciously, you will soon come out of it. Or maybe you won't. Either way, there is no inner conflict, no resistance, no negativity.
1: Yeah, I mean, right before that, he says, you have three options. Remove yourself, change it, mm. or accept it totally. And I, I was, like, glad to see that. Like, okay, so we're t- we're not just, you know. You we're know, not
2: just surrendering. We're
1: not just surrendering. Or surrender means more than passivity. Mm-hmm. It means, um, oh, I accept that this is happening And here's how I'm going to.
0: Because there's a kind of denial that keeps us from progress. Um, We've had a a guest in an upcoming show talk about uh, going into AA for addiction. And one of the first steps is merely admitting that you need help and that there even a problem. And as humans, we are so good at not believing what's actually there about us, Mm -hmm. in us. It's an important
3: part of being true to ourselves, of being authentic, of this this accepting attitude. That quote that you mentioned, Steve, is tough though. He talks about conflicting desires within us. And I don't think that we can surrender to any one of them as though it was the chief Mm -hmm. desire. I think that we really are say more about that. Well I think that we're straddling a lot of different impulses um that are often in conflict with each other and The existentialists would say that causes anxiety and to be accepting and to be authentic is to take that as a given and just say, I'm going to be anxious and feel guilty for indebting myself to choosing things that I, you know, choosing things over other things
2: that I wanted to do. He doesn't seem to make room for that, but I... I think how he would probably respond—I've been reading a lot of philosophy of agency recently um, and, like, competing desires. I think how he would respond probably is if you're accessing being in the right way, there would only be one, like, desire. And he— I But think, that desire
1: would be, like, bigger, right? Yes, is, yes. Would transcend mm-hmm. whatever small thing.
2: I, I think what he would probably say is one of—one or multiple of our desires that are in, like, conflict with us— are from the ego or the pain body um i i don't me myself i don't know if that's sufficient because i do think this concern that you brought up is really powerful but um i think that's how he would respond
1: well and i i i mean i just think of adam and eve right given conflicting (laughs) here are conflicting laws please obey
0: That, that can't coexist that
1: can't coexist and and for me, what a helpful way to actually understand human existence. There are a bunch of conflicting things. Please okay. figure it out.
3: Which is why <laughs> surrender isn't the appropriate program.
1: Right. I think perhaps. Um, yeah. We've
3: got to be active
0: in a lot of this. But there is well, one. But maybe they could have never chosen. Right. And and just lived in worry about, which it's still a choice.
1: Yeah, not choosing is dun, a choice. Dun, dun. <laughs> I mean, just look at my dating life. I mean, a hundred years ago, not now. I'm married, but yeah.
0: So we have just a few minutes left. I want to ask each of you why you think this book is so popular or why it is meaningful to so many people.
1: I'm going to start as the non-academic person in the room. I mean, I'm an academic, but not in this field. And I would say this is big enough container to hold a whole bunch of different ideas and a whole bunch of different moments where someone can say, oh, yeah I could do that right i think I think that's what what why there are five million do- copies sold right
2: yeah. including the four that we have
1: yes <laughs>
2: <laughs> um for me, one of the things that struck that struck me about this book was that um just reading it, there were a lot of things that challenged me and I felt deep resistance to and still do to be honest but um i there were moments like you just said heather that stuck out to me as saying, I could do this. And not only could I do this, I think I would benefit from doing so. And it helped me notice some of my own personal habits that are definitely not healthy. Um, And this book kind of... His project is actually super interesting because it's so expansive. There are so many terms that he tries to redefine. Consciousness, being, time, God. All these things this book takes a radical stab at and some hit, some miss, but I think there's a lot of points in it that would do me good. So I'm glad I read it. And I think the hits and misses will be different for different people. Exactly.
3: Yeah, I think that this book, for me, it adds to my toolbox of things that I can use to cope with life. Um, one of them, for example, pulling a quote from... What chapter is this called? Create no more pain in the present. He says... Whatever the present moment contains, accept it as if you had chosen it. and I don't know what he's trying to say totally there, but for me, it represents, it represents an idea that I can take responsibility uh, for the present and move forward with what is and, and not lacerate or
1: Well it gives you autonomy. Yeah. It says you have autonomy, and I think one of the most painful things in in human experience is to say I have no control, mm. and I didn't. I'm not here because I want to be here, right? But as soon as you say, "Okay, I chose this," then you can start choosing other choices.
3: Yeah. So I think it um, sort of amplifies my agency in a lot of ways. This mindfulness very useful psychologically. I wouldn't count on it um, for anything cosmic
0: metaphysical. I picked a closing quote here. He sort of sums it up from Eckhart himself. Realize deeply that the present moment is all you have. Make the now the primary focus of your life. And I see lots of wisdom in that and have personal experience to testify of that to me. So this has been really fun for me. I wish we had more time, but we'll have yet another book and yet another episode book club episode we're looking for three months from now you'll be hearing about that in your feed if you subscribe to the podcast we'll have a little bonus episode coming up going in depth to our next book drumroll please our next book peter which is
2: it will be gilead by marilyn robinson (sighs) this book is fabulous um it's won a bunch of awards i don't know i don't know them off the top of my head but i do know that this book is just a truly beautiful meditation it's a novel Um, kind of on what it means to be a religious person and, and lead a religious life. And it's just gorgeous. There's so much for everyone. And I'm so excited that we'll get the chance to dive into it together.
0: This is In Good Faith. Our episode was produced by Heather Bigley with help from Peter Ellison and Austin Ball, engineering and editing from Daniel Phillips, in Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you enjoy the show, I hope you leave a comment or review where you get your podcasts and help spread the word. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at InGoodFaithPod, and our Facebook page is at In Good faith Podcast. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon, right here, in good faith.